Smartcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, welcome back to E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you are safe and well during these crazy times. We continue our series today in conversation with business leaders and founders as we move forward alongside the global pandemic. And today is Brian Smith, founder of Ugg Boots, who is back on the show for a second time. If you want to hear the first episode with Brian, you can rewind back all the way back to episode four. But in this one, we discuss Brian's pivot out of public speaking in the wake of the pandemic, of course, and what he's up to now. We also discuss key lessons from his book called The Birth of a Brand, which you can find on Amazon. His experience navigating through recessions, um, which is a very timely topic, of course. Why Brian ultimately decided to sell UGG in the late 90s and the circumstances around the sale and much more. And with that, let's get to the show. How are things going down in California? I think it's been a while since we last spoke. You were on the speaking circuit for a while, and now obviously yeah. there's no there's no speaking. So so what's going on? Yeah, that evaporated. I took a couple of weeks to try and figure it out, and I ended up approaching a group of uh, it, it's it's a business that I invested in a couple of years ago as a as an angel investor and. Uh, it's in the live action shopping space. So we have a platform that we've built that sort of looks like Facebook Live. Uh-huh. But it's got all the benefits of QVC. We beta tested it for two years with you know maybe a half a dozen owners or vendors, and we've hit like a half a million dollars in both years. So uh, because all four of us who started it were you know we all got out of the jobs. Nobody was looking after the store. We didn't even know we'd been selling that much. And so I did all the accounting and said, shit, you know, let me come on and take this to market. What's what's it like in California? Is everyone wearing a mask? No, we're, especially where I live in Encinitas, you know, it's the last hippie stronghold of the world, you know, and everybody, everybody is anti-authoritarianism. You know, so I would say... Like, like I have a mask in my back pocket. I've had it for two months. The only time I put it in is when I walk into a store, like a, a medical office or something like that. But most people like jogging on the beach or walking up and down all the, the trails, very, no, I don't say very few. I'd say half and half are wearing masks. But there's an attitude here, even with the mask wearers, that it's sort of bullshit, you know, that there's uh, – 
you know, I have a friend who's a microbiologist and I said, you know, if you put one of these masks under a microscope, would there be air holes that, that you know, air passes through and they go, oh, it's like trying to stop a, a virus microbe is like trying to stop a golf ball coming through the front door at the Four Seasons on Maui, you know. I just do it because that's what makes people kind of, I don't like make, making people feel uncomfortable. I I'm certainly not going to force the issue trying to get into a store without one. So it's easier just to put it on. Um, besides the speaking, has your routine changed at all? I mean, I know you like to spend a ton of time outdoors and surfing and yoga and all that kind of stuff. How yeah, else are you it, spending the time? Well, I, my, my lifestyle while I'm at home hasn't changed because uh, I work from home and uh, do all my bookings from home. But what has changed is that I'm not showing up at airports anymore and being on this travel uh, regimen, which was I, – I enjoyed it at the time, but now I look back and think how hard that was and how much time I was spending in dead time, you know, with you know traveling to the airport, waiting in the airport, planes, hotels, speak for an hour, you know, Q&A and, and socializing for – half a day and then returning it, it it was really grueling and also the business of speaking is is i realized how much effort i had to put into trying to secure speaking engagements and uh when i you know after i was a month into lash.live i started realizing just how heavy it felt when i thought about going back on the road speaking again so it it was sort of a you know a, a change that was thrust upon me and I'm, you know, grateful for it. In fact, in my book, you know, I wrote a book called The Birth of a Brand, which is a sort of a roadmap for entrepreneurs. One of the uh, greatest pieces of philosophy, you know, the book's full of philosophy and spirituality, but there's one statement in there that you, nearly always your most disappointing disappointments become your greatest blessings. And my life in the last two months is a perfect example of that again where, you know, I, I lost, you know, the, the day I realized, oh, shit, all my contracts are going to cancel, and I had a, a lot of money um, coming in through June, it all evaporated in February. You know, in a month or two, it's going to be back doing a job that I love, that I've got a lot of enthusiasm for, and it's, uh, you know, a business with a tremendous upside potential. Uh, once we hit it, hit the market. And so I'm like back in full entrepreneur mode again. So for me personally, it's it's probably, the, you know, the best thing that ever happened. Will you take on the role of CEO, Brian, with Lash? No, I've, the, the girl who started it, the girl I've been mentoring for five or six years is she has a company selling a lamb leather sash bag. It's a shoulder bag which has really unique um, pocket options, so you can carry a lot of stuff in it. I've been mentoring her for five or six years, and uh, she's a, just brilliant at social media and building a community. And we did talk about me coming in as a CEO, but I don't have the skill set for social media that's going to be required. And you mentioned you're going to raise, or you're preparing to raise the seed round. You've been working on the investor deck. And on the first episode of the show we did way back, you shared what it was like raising capital before desktop computers, <laughs> running running around with, with, with 13 column paper. So we've definitely come a long way on the VC front since then. Do you find that the environment has really changed um, over the course of the pandemic in terms of getting deals done? So... 
we're too early for venture capital at this stage. So we're more looking for seed investors and we're only looking for a million dollars because the thing's cash flowing really well. I mean, we, we make a commission on every sale that's made. So the more vendors we get in making sales, that, that's where our revenue stream comes from or the primary revenue stream. And so we're, we're just looking for seed investors trying to raise about a million dollars and uh, that'll be more than enough to take it to market. And once we see how it catches on, that's if it really looks like it's going to go through the roof, that's when we might look to the venture capitalist. You mentioned the book earlier, The Birth of a Brand, um, and one of the lessons from it. Are there other lessons from the book that you highlight, given the challenge that we're facing right now, either as it relates to the crisis or as it relates to some of the racial injustices or anything that we're seeing currently? In the middle of last year, I decided I was going to do the audio version, and I thought, you know, the book had been out two and a half years, and I thought, okay, now's my chance to go back and revamp it, modernize it, and bring it up to date. And I read it. And I didn't change a single word. It's like this. The information in my book is so evergreen. And the theme that I start out with, which is the major theme of the book, uh, is playing out in my life again today. And here's the, the concept that the book's written around. You can't give birth to adults. You remember that? Every business idea, every sandwich shop, every you know, TV show, every brick and mortar store starts out with someone conceiving it. And then they take action. And that's the birth of the, the concept. So like the birth of Ag was buying six pairs of samples. Eventually, it, it becomes a uh, toddler. And that's a pretty cool phase for every business where, you know, the, your first true believers are buying the product, they're telling their friends, you know, People are writing articles about you in magazines. But if you have a really great product or a really great service that's sort of, uh, you know, world-changing, you're going to hit the teenage years. And that's when it gets really difficult again because just like as a teenager you wanted to be in every party in town every week, well, in business you want to be in every major trade show and you want to be in every mass retailer. And it is really, really easy to outstrip your capital. So to tie that back to now, I'm in the infancy. Well, we've, we've given birth. We've tested it. So we, we're pretty much through the infancy. And now we're about to go to market, which is our toddling phase. You know, it doesn't matter how rich you are or how clever you are or, you know, what idea you have. You're always going to go through these teething times. And and Ugg went through teething times too. I think the first year was something like twenty eight pairs uh, of Ugg well, sold, right? In the first year. <laughs> yeah, I thought when I thought of the idea, you know, like I was, you know, I came to America looking for a business to take back to Australia, you know, because I didn't want to be an accountant anymore. And it was months and months and months here looking for the next big thing. And uh, I was up at Malibu surfing, and and. It was October and the wind was getting really chilly and the water was cold and I finished a surf and I was pulling on my sheepskin boots that I'd brought from Australia and went, oh, shit, there are no sheepskin boots in America. And one in two Australians owned some sort of sheepskin footwear. So I thought, you know, mathematically, well, there's 20 times as many people in America. This thing is going to be huge. I'm going to be an instant millionaire. And so that started 
that was the conception of UGG, right? And then we bought six pairs of samples and got shut out by the shoe retailers. They thought we were crazy selling sheepskin in California. But I figured out that all the surf shop owners and the surf surfers in general were really familiar with Uggs because so many of them had been to Australia on their surf trips and had brought four or five pairs back with you know for their buddies. So we went into the surf market and the initial run I did you know, were, you know, all the surf shop owners were going, oh, man, Ugbo's fantastic. You're going to make a fortune. So that led me to raising some money, about 20 grand, and we bought 500 pairs of uh, boots in. And then we went back to these same surf shops, and, you know, I had an order pad and all the, all the product, and they go, oh, well done, Brian. But, you know, we, we couldn't sell them in our store. We just sell surfboards and trunks and flip-flops, you know, they're way too expensive. You'll do great in the shoe stores. And so that was a very demoralizing, you know, month trying to, you know, sell product. And you're right, the first season we sold 28 pairs. When you sold, I think the business was at 15 million or something in revenue, correct? Just over 15, Just over 15. Would you describe that as the youth phase or was that, the teenage phase of the brand. I'm trying to just get a sense of what the revenue benchmarks would be here. Uh, no, the the youth. Well, I'll, I would say the toddling stage lasted the first three years, as I was trying to get um, all these surf shops and, and pretty much anyone. I was just getting totally shut out from the shoe stores. Like, ah, oh, they'll never. They're a fair, They'll never take off. You know, they're ugly and everything. And so, I started advertising the first season after that and i got some models and and put it posed them at the beach with you know in la jolla with perfect hair and clothing and makeup and you know the ugg boots front and center of the ad you know and the sales went to five thousand the next year so i got another summer job and the next year i thought okay i'll get better looking models and a more expensive photographer and we posed them on the beach at wind and sea and then you know sales went to ten thousand and uh I got another summer job, and that was the third year I was about to give up because uh, it was getting no traction. And instead of advertising, well, before I started the season, I had a beer with one of my surf shop owners, and I was explaining this dilemma that I, you know, I was getting no traction. And he, he just goes, oh, shut up, Brian. And he called out to all these, you know, half a dozen little surf grommets that were, you know, in the back of the shop, and he says, you guys, what do you guys think of Uggs? And every one of them just went, oh, man, those Uggs, they're so fake. You've seen those ads, those models, they can't surf. And, like, I instantly realized that I was sending the wrong message to the target market. Instead of engaging a photographer, I just took my little Canon Sure Shot and we, we went surfing at Trestles uh, in San Onofre and Black's Beach in La Jolla. And these, these walks are about a mile to the beach. And at the end, there's this fantastic surf, and every kid who reads Surfer Magazine is aware of these spots. And I just ran the ads in October this third year, for the fourth year it was actually, and instantly the sales that season went to $200,000, right? And why? why? Because I created some authenticity in my ads. And the next year at the trade show in March, we were inundated with buyers. Uh, from more of the mainstream outlets, and that was like the the end of toddling and the beginning of youth. And 
And we ran that youth right through to when I sold the company at $15 million. Entrepreneurs, they hit walls. They need to pivot quickly. This is happening across the board right now to many businesses and many sectors. Are you seeing trends right now with businesses that you are advising or mentoring or entrepreneurs that you're working with, trends in how entrepreneurs or founders are pivoting um, or taking advantage of this crisis? Maybe that's a bad way to put it, but... That's, that's quite fair. The one thing that was a, a really good thing, I mean, this was painful, right, for most people, but it was a really good thing for entrepreneurs to have to let go all their staff and as entrepreneurs, you bring people on and they just sort of grow like, <laughs> I was going to use the word grow like mold, but they just sort of appear and they never go away. So that without noticing it, the overheads go up and the, you know, the costs are, are increasing and they all have a little drain on you. And, and so quite often after four or five years, most entrepreneurs are paying like a half a dozen people and making zero money themselves, right? This pandemic gave everybody the excuse to let everyone go. And I noticed with uh, the, you know, you know, some of the groups that I've worked with that they, they were still managing to run the business with half the staff or even one third the staff. Yeah, you see that everywhere. Yeah. And they only brought those ones in who back on who were absolutely critical. So it was a fantastic opportunity for entrepreneurs worldwide to, to sort of wipe the table clean and start again. But this time they're starting with an ongoing business and they know the, they know the ropes and they only begin to bring on people who are really valuable to them. Now they're coming back in much more savvy, much more cost conscious and much more, not greedy, but, but ready to take it on and make money for themselves instead of paying all these other people that were hanging on. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You were talking about the investor landscape and how there are still many investors looking for deals. We were in this mode of continuously financing businesses with top line growth, but we're bleeding large sums of money. And do you see a shift back to profit first companies? Very much so. Um, that whole Silicon Valley model just just blew up of its own, you know, irrationality, in my opinion. The valuations of companies were so high based on this huge customer growth, but there was never any profits. I think that's gone because the savvy investors now are looking for real businesses that have real people, real systems, and have a bottom line. And it may, you know, they may not sort of 
forecast to be profitable for a year or two, but they do forecast profits. So those ones who just want to grow and we don't know how we're going to, you know, monetize it, you know, I don't know how, I don't know how they got funded in the first place. Everyone was looking for the next Facebook, you know, but I think now most people, most investors are going to be looking at, okay, what's the real potential of the profits for this business and how can I cash out in the long term? And you know, the the stock market should have been reflecting this, but it hasn't. The stock market has just kept going up, you know. Bottom line is the, the new investors are all going to be looking for value in profits. Yeah, I was talking to another guest on the podcast about this. The stock market is sort of behaving in its own universe, um, completely disconnected from reality uh, or the mainstream economy. So I, I don't understand it. I mean, all of the gains have been recovered since March uh, and then some. I think the NASDAQ is at an all-time high. It's bizarre. And we're facing probably the deepest and darkest recession that we've ever had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, you know, it, it's become like a, a gambling institution, the stock market. And they're like, I know a guy, a good friend, he bought a half a dozen stocks, invested everything he had in companies he knew were going to go down, right, like transport companies, airlines, uh, retail companies. And when the first hit came and the stock market did plunge, he made a couple of million dollars because you know, a week later he then bought the stock at less than half of what he paid, what he received for selling it. And he made a couple of million dollars for doing nothing, for a pure gamble. Well, if I have one friend like that, you've got to believe there are millions of people out there. And that's what the stock market is made up of these days, these gamblers who are more interested in the sale and the, the, the manipulation than they are in looking for value in companies. Yeah. Um, and you're not kidding. Casinos have been closed. Uh, sports has been canceled. Um, there, there was nothing to bet on. So I think there's some merit to what you're saying that a lot of these people are actually gamblers. Were there any economic recessions dating back to 78 that nearly put UG out of business? Well, believe it or not, I started in 78. I think that was the year of the big oil embargoes, you know, where, where you know, interest rates went. I remember interest rates at 22%, you know, to get a loan. That was when I first started, but I was such a small player, it didn't really affect me. Um, and then it seems like every 10 years, uh, 88, I think there was another one in the 80s, late 80s. But again, I was in such a fringe market. You know, back then I was in the surfing and snowboarding and skiing markets and hadn't really gone mainstream yet. That was uh, another one. And I never was faced with letting people go from a, a, a recession. My problem was that. We only had a three-month sort of business cycle. You know, we, we would work for orders from January, February, all the way through September, and then we'd ship October, November, December, and then after that it was like no sales, so we had to let everybody go. So, you know, when we became a $10 million company, we had to gear up for like a $40 million company to get, you know, $10 million of product out in three months, right? But then after that, we had to sort of let everybody go again. So it was a sort of a natural cycle. If 
for UG to gear up for the the winter period and then let people go. So that I must didn't... have been a huge challenge related to financing. We were totally unfinanceable. I mean, <laughs> yeah. they looked this this huge inventory build up with no income, a three month cycle, and then you've got all the receivables out there. You got to collect for the next four or five months. And so yeah, the the investment banks. I I was never successfully able to finance the company. I was, always had to be going to individual investors. Um, and, you know, it was the worst of, of, uh, of all business cycles. And the seasonality, as well as just the employee side, you know, the financing was tough. And, and uh, you know, it had all the elements. <laughs> it had all the worst elements of any business, the, the, the time. So, it's, you know, with my company, Live now we take 10% off whatever sells. And we, we have no inventory, no receivables. No seasonality. It's like such a dream. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, the opposite. Um, just looking at the list of recessions, there's one in 1980, uh, another one that lasted a year and a half between 81 and 82, where unemployment was at 10.8%. Um, the early recession of the 1990s in the US, which lasted eight months, unemployment was just shy of 8% in June of 92. Um, and then early 2000s, you must have been out by then, right? You sold when, was it? Yeah, late 95. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And right now, COVID, we are approaching, I think no one really knows what the, um, the real unemployment number is, but somewhere in the vicinity of 20%, I think. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. I'm curious to know what was going through your head uh, when you decided to sell. Uh, what were the motivators? What was going on in the business? And what were you facing personally at the time that you decided to sell? Well, great question. Three parts. Uh, okay, the business had evolved. Um, one of the main things, I, like, we were very scattered in our marketing image in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. So I, like, well, we were huge in surf and snowboarding and skiing. And, and back east, I discovered that you know what the kids do in the winter for sport is is ice hockey. So we were huge in the in the hockey market, and that had led to all the moms, you know, buying product for their kids in the rinks. And then the moms who had to sit in the rinks started buying them from themselves, and then they started buying for their daughters. and And so it started to get a big female component to it. And uh, I came up with an image called casual comfort, and I thought, okay, I'm going to get this into more mainstream and I decided that you know to, to really launch this I wanted to get on the front cover of the lifestyle page of USA Today newspaper and so I hired a PR agency and we put together this really really good pitch and uh, it was a sort of a combination of, 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 of uh, you know like a pitch deck plus product plus you know a lot of visuals and it was about a you know, 30, 45 minute presentation I came up with and, and I'd made an appointment with the fashion editor at USA Today and I arrived like five minutes early this afternoon and, and she comes running out and says, oh, Brian, I'm so sorry, I've made a mistake. You know, I've double booked. I can't, you know, I've got to be on this conference call. I've got five minutes and I just went, oh, shit, you know, because my, my presentation was at least 45 minutes and uh, just the best pivot I ever made, right, was... <laughs> I thought, okay, I'm not going to be able to give my pitch. And I reached down into my briefcase and I just pulled out this tatty old folder I'd been carrying around for like 15 years. 
and it was full of all these photos of celebrity, right? And and I said, well, look, here's here's the history of this, and you know, put out Neil Young and Tom Petty and Sting and Patrick Swayze, you know, the grumpy old men movie, you know, Brooke Shields and everything, and and there was one photograph I tried to flick past really quick. It was this girl on the beach in a red swimsuit, you know, looking at a script, and she was wearing these tall white Ugg boots. And I quickly flicked by that because nobody, you know, nobody wears them that way. And I went to Heather Locklear, you know, and she goes, go back, go back, who is that? And it was Pamela Anderson from Baywatch. And she grabbed it out of my hand and took down the name of the photographer and the, the news, you know, the, the uh, tabloid that it came from. Someone had sent it to me from England, you know. And she said, do you have a press kit? And I said, yep. And she was gone in like four minutes. And I just thought, oh, shit, you know, this this campaign put nearly 30,000 bucks to put together. I walked out pretty dejected. And the next day I, I was in O'Hare Airport ready to go back to San Diego. And uh, I bought a cup of coffee in USA Today. And I opened up the thing and I got to the lifestyle section. And here's the front and center of the photograph of Pamela Anderson. And uh, the next page was a complete, the whole page, a complete expose on the whole shearling industry and, you know, for shearling footwear and how that related to fashion. And she listed all of our competitors, which I really didn't like, but it turned out to be a good thing. And by the time I got back to San Diego, I, I found out that the phones hadn't stopped ringing all day from consumers wanting to know where the retailer was near them. And from retailers saying, how the hell can I get this product? Everybody's coming in after it. I was just in negotiations to sell the company. And uh, that previous Christmas, like a month before, we'd I'd got a call from this. Well, it was actually from Trudy Styler, who was the wife of Sting. And we'd been sending boots to her friends for years in England. And it was a pain in the ass because we had to do a separate customs invoice for everyone in the busiest season, you know, but we did it anyway, just because it was Sting's wife. And anyway, she called up and said, oh, Brian, Brian, I've been to a seminar. It's changed my world. I need a perfect gift. Do you have a pair of perfect size, let's say eights, you know, tall sand? And here's where to send them. Do you have a, a pen? And I go, yep. She goes, Oprah, care of Oprah Winfrey, Chicago, you know, and we ship boots over to Oprah. And then she immediately called back and ordered a whole bunch of boots for her staff. But I'm going to backtrack now because you asked why and when did I sell the business. The sales had got, you know, we'd just come off a about a $15 million season and it was looking like with our pre-season orders that the next year was going to be 20 to $25 million. And as we mentioned, I was unbankable because of this huge, you know, short need. So I was thinking, shit, how can I, uh, how can I finance this? You know, I, I, I just don't know what, what to do. And, and I was at a trade show, going to a trade show in Atlanta. And at the other end of baggage claim, I saw this guy, Doug Otto. And Doug and I had started out at the same time. I started out with the Ugg boots in the, in the parking lot at Malibu. And he was a couple of spaces up every every week, and he was selling out of the back of his van as well. And he was selling these triple decker neoprene thongs, flip flops, and he called them deckers. So over the years, he took on a lot of different licensed product, and he built up a company 
called Decker's Corporation and recently acquired the Teva sandal brand. And he took his company public on that. It went, you know, the outdoor market took off and he went with it. And he raised about $60 million. You know, his sales were about $60 million at the time. He raised a huge amount of money. And when I saw him at the other end of the baggage claim, I just got goosebumps and I went, oh, shit, there's the solution. Because his business died every winter and our business died every summer. And we joked on the road for years, you know, hey, why don't you buy me out? Oh, you can't afford it, you know, stuff like that. And I walked up to him and, you know, we, we high-fived and I said, Doug, if ever we're going to do it, now's the time. It took about nine months to close the deal, but we ended up selling out for cash. And it was like me going public without having to go public. So it was a brilliant solution. Deckers took over. We brought the relationship for Oprah in there. And I was consulting with him for a couple of years on, on this project. And over the year, the next two years, we, we got our supply lines really, really solid. The financing was there. And once we were geared up, we said, okay, Oprah, let's go. And she put us on the best picks for Christmas show. Was We had 25 minutes of nothing but Ugg boots on Oprah when she was at her absolute peak of popularity. And then we were two years on Oprah's best picks for Christmas and Oprah's favorite things. We were on that twice. And that not only took it national, it took it international. And that is how Deckers was able to capitalize on that relationship. And they went from the millions to the hundreds of millions and, and eventually into the billions. The interesting thing is you, you can't start a business out that is going to be a billion-dollar business because it takes two things. It takes one a product that has the potential to be disruptive, which Ugg sort of turned out to be, and, but it takes a societal shift. It takes a market shift. To happen. You know, you made the best product in the world, but unless there's a societal shift that, or this product is so disruptive that it's going to change the world, it'll just be a good million or, you know, a hundred million dollar, two hundred million dollar company. But that's a far cry from the billions. And to get in the billions, you have to have both the product and that societal shift. Yeah. And we're seeing that societal shift across the board right now. Uh, yeah. Lots of business examples. I mean, we just talked about Zoom um, with my previous guest in the last podcast about how they got sucked into this vortex and went from something like 20 million users to now upwards of 300. Would you believe that two years ago, I spoke to the, the entire Zoom employee base at a big conference? Huh. And uh, I gave that example of you can't give birth to adults, right? And and after the event, you know, the, the, the president and one of the other founders were talking to me going, you know, we just seem to be stuck in this period. You know, we, we're growing like crazy. We, we need more developers and programmers, but we just can't seem to crack the big numbers. And I said, well, you know, you just keep working at it. You know, you can't give birth to adults. Well, who would believe that the pandemic would mean everyone switches to Zoom and they're, they're going to be in the billions so fast, you know, they won't even see it happening. They owe you some shares, uh, <laughs> if nothing else. Okay, Brian, uh, in the last few minutes, is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you think we should touch on before we wrap up? Um, no, you mentioned a lot of your listeners might be uh, people in corporate life who are sort of done with and they want to get out and start something new. And I'd just like to give some advice to those types of people and, and all entrepreneurs who are thinking of starting a business, but you're too scared to, right? The first thing is, don't be afraid to start. Nothing happens 
until that, you know, when you have conception, the first action is, is, is the birth and you must take that first action. I'm not suggesting for people with good jobs to give up the jobs yet. Start the new project, do it on the weekends, do it at night, do it any way you can until it gets traction and, and only leave your job when you know that you, you'd be better off spending your time in the new venture. And for those other entrepreneurs starting out, you know, if you keep trying to wait till it's perfect, forget it. It'll never, never happen. If you could see a photograph of the very first Ugg boots that came in, they had glue all over them. They had no binding. They were, the, the, the soles were like linoleum. They were just really shit product compared to what we produce today. But it was enough to get started. So the critical thing is if you're interested in being an entrepreneur, take the steps, get started. And just run with it because, you know, the thing will take on a life of its own and it, it will follow the birth to adult syndrome. And as you say, experiences of adversity were among the most fortunate and profitable of all of my experiences. So many lessons uh, to be drawn from what you've shared online and also what you've shared in your book, which is Birth of a Brand. And they can find that book on Amazon or I guess no bookstores currently, <laughs> but they can find it on Amazon. It, where else can people connect with you or follow you on social? You, I have a website called ugfounder.com, which you'll always be able to get me my emails on there. And hopefully you'll be seeing lash.live. Uh, come across your radar uh, in the not near, you know, too distant future. I'm going to leave you with my very, very favorite quote from the book, and that is, the quickest way for a tadpole to become a frog is to live every day happily as a tadpole, and the accent is happily. So it doesn't matter what situation you're in today with COVID or you know whatever other circumstances are brought about, just live it every day, try and do the best you can every day because life is long and things change. Time over and over and over has proven to me that it changes things and uh, it won't be long before you're in a much better place. That's great last words. Uh, Brian, thanks for doing this again. Appreciate so much your time and all that you've shared today. Thanks for coming on. Hey, Adam. Thanks a lot, buddy. Good luck to everybody. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, is that the No, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big hole. Touchdown! On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric ass. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonize your mind, body, and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together, we explore vibrations, frequencies, and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress, and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today.